0: This is a Restless Interview. Welcome back to Restless, a postmortem on the young, restless, and reformed. I'm your host, Matt, as always, joined by Pastor Michael. Pastor Michael, today is a very special day for Restless. Did you know that?
1: Well, I do because I'm kind of uh, on the behind the scenes, and I can see who's with us on the video. But why don't you share with everyone else why today is such a special day?
0: Well, for me personally, it's special because I'm getting to use the undergraduate degree I got in sociology today. It's one of my degrees, and it will come in use today as we are interviewing Dr. Brad Vermerlin, who is a sociologist at the University of Texas at Austin. He actually wrote his PhD dissertation on New Calvinism which has now been published as the book The Reformed Resurgence by Oxford Press. Welcome, Brad, to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Well, thank you for making time for us. Yeah, we're looking back at New Calvinism, and we thought it would be a great chance to get you on to talk about the movement because we want to look back, but we want to do so accurately. And we know you have done a lot of research on it for your PhD in the book.
2: Yeah, it was a years long process. It's been an interest of mine since I started paying attention to the landscape of evangelicalism back in two
0: thousand seven and eight. So, um, it was it was fun to write. So, why was why for you or why is there why was there this kind of academic interest in looking into this movement?
2: Well, it struck me as an important movement within the broader landscape of American evangelicalism. Um, back in two thousand eight and nine, I was aware of big-name evangelical pastors like Mark Driscoll, John Piper, Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, and the influence they were having among younger Christians. I, As a young grad student in sociology, I would go to these conferences on religion, and one thing that struck me was that in the conference rooms we would talk about um, whatever, the research, whatever the research we were doing. It would be some really interesting projects, whether they were qualitative or quantitative, you know, looking at what correlates with what on surveys, but then we'd step out into the hallway and the conversation would be uh, more organic about, "Hey, did you hear what John Piper said last week, mm-hmm. or what, what their most recent flare-up from Mark Driscoll was?" And it struck me that this was a movement that even young professional sociologists were paying attention to, but as far as I could tell, nobody was studying. And it, it struck me as a, a project that I could tackle well.
0: well tell our listeners as we've as we've read some of it how you went about. Uh, researching the movement.
2: Right. So I had been paying attention to the movement for two or three years before I started working on the project. But the project started in the fall of 2012 um, when I um, flew out to Seattle to spend some time at Mars Hill Church where Mark Driscoll was the pastor. So I spent two and a half months there um, doing all the church events I could and interviewing many of the leaders of the church. Uh, after that, I did similar things at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, where Tim Keller is, and then I did the same thing at Bethlehem Baptist Church in uh, Minneapolis with John Piper. Uh, so those were the three main sites of what we call participant observation. But on top of that, I also did interviews, like I said, with evangelical leaders, 75 of them in total, um, with slight oversamples from leaders within those churches, but it was um, good range of evangelical leaders from all across the country Calvinist and not um, people who were uh, committed to the movement and and also leaders who were critical of it and I also supplemented that with a deep dive into the digital and print world of American evangelicalism so um, read a a sample of evangelical books that seemed relevant to to the movement as well as um, lots of, you know, blogs, videos, sermons, everything you can find on the internet, which is a lot about um, evangelicalism today. So those were the three main sources of, of data. Um, it was a, So it was a qualitative project, interviews, participant observation, and content analysis. And so um, by the time it came to um, analyzing the data in writing, it was um, around 2014. And so I just had a huge pile of data to, to sift through and um, started writing. So it, it took me, Um, more than two years to finish and defend the dissertation that was in 2016. Then after grad school, I did sit on the project for a little bit, but I was able to revisit it and um, revise it in certain ways. I cut off 10,000 words on the front end and added 10,000 words on the back end and um, ended up getting it published as a book with Oxford, which was the goal all all along. So it was great.
0: That is great. I, I think it's safe to say that on new Calvinism as a movement, uh, brad is the expert the living expert on it has a movement
1: so what what year was it or years was it when you were doing the on the ground research
2: it was fall of 2012 through um of around 2000 the end of 2014 although i did pay more attention to the digital and print world of american evangelicalism up through um up through the end of grad school so that was spring of 2016 and i really had to at some point, just you know, cut it off and say, "I'm no longer going right. to immerse myself in this. Immerse myself in this world." So I, 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 I pretty much stopped um, in the beginning of 2016.
1: Yeah, we've talked about the uh, plethora of books and and conferences and just everything that uh, was pushed out for the longest time. So uh, it would have been quite the undertaking to try to continue to sift through all of that for a long period. Right.
0: The Gospel Coalition wasn't going to slow down publishing blogs uh, to read. Well, Brad, I think for our listeners, one of the most important questions we can get get your thoughts on are, so what was or what is New Calvinism or the young, restless, and reformed as um, as people might know it?
2: Right, so that's a good question. I think it's reflected well in the title of my book, which is Reformed Resurgence. So it's basically a, a resurgence in some sense of reformed theology. What does that mean? It's, um, it's an increase somehow, and we can get into this, um, of the reformed confession of the Christian faith and especially Calvinism along with things that come along with Calvinism and American evangelicalism, like certain views of gender and sexuality and mission. Mm -hmm. It's It's an increase of that somehow within American evangelicalism since the turn of the millennium. Um, we can get into more about this, but one of the main findings of the book, I argue, is that there has been an increase numerically in Calvinism um, and um, especially Calvinistic view of salvation over the decades. Um, there have been people, I'm not a member of, of the Evangelical Theological Society, but I've read people who are saying that there's a notable increase of Calvinism in those types of settings, um, an increase in um book publishing along Calvinistic lines. So there are um, hints that there is a numerical increase, but one of the main arguments I make in my book is that the the, the increase is um, only partly about the numbers and that some of the most interesting things about the reform resurgence are the, um, I guess you'd say more qualitative increases, increases in prominence, increases in influence, increases in visibility. And um, so it's, it's increase in a variety of ways of, Calvinism in American Evangelicalism.
0: I think I think that will be one of the most important insights we'll get to talk to you about from from your work is what kind of a resurgence it was. Michael, you wanted to ask a little bit about his assessment of Evangelicalism on a whole before we got there, though.
1: Yeah, yeah. Before we get into that, because I do think that that will be obviously incredibly important to your whole thesis. Uh, but uh, as We're talking about this as a resurgence within evangelicalism itself Uh, in uh, some of the work that you sent us. One of the things that you point out is uh, the idea that the increase or or this resurgence, uh, this kind of neo-reform movement uh, within evangelicalism actually shows in part, the weakness of evangelicalism itself uh, as a movement or whatever you want to call it. Could you just elaborate on that a little bit and speak about evangelicalism as a whole?
2: That's right. Yeah. So one of the basic moves the book makes is that it's impossible to make sense of or explain the reform resurgence in isolation as uh, just looking at a religious movement in itself. In order to make sense of it, you have to ask, okay, resurging in comparison to what? And so you have to look at the new Calvinism within the broader landscape or what I call it a field of American evangelicalism. So other pockets and expressions of evangelicalism in the United States is, um, the proper context for understanding what it is, the reform resurgence is resurging against. Um, So I do have kind of a pessimistic view of American evangelicalism as a whole in the sense that I think the new Calvinism was in many ways, a reaction against certain trends in other pockets and expressions of evangelicalism. So um, certain more progressive views of morality, gender, sexuality, from the most progressive expressions of evangelicalism. It was in some ways a reaction against the um, emergent church and their interest in postmodernist philosophy. It was a reaction against the seeker sensitive model of many kind of suburban evangelical mega It was a reaction against a lot of atheological or sentimentalized views of, um, in other expressions of evangelicalism. So if you understand the reform resurgence as in, in some sense reactionary, um, it starts. you start to see elements of evangelical faith that proponents of the reform resurgence viewed as, as subpar and that they wanted to, um, to push against. And so you have all these elements seeker-sensitive, progressive views of certain important issues, um, and a theological ethos that shows a lot of variety, to say the least, in American evangelicalism. And I would say that um, it even shows some divisions, some crucial divisions within American evangelicalism. So while the reformed resurgence represents religious strength, overall, by the end of the book, you see a picture of field-wide weakness and fragmentation.
0: These these other movements they're reacting against, you describe as the kind of major, did you, did you call them the other major tribes or the other major segments of the field?
2: That's right. So um, I do use the language of tribes, which I of course borrowed or stole from Mark Driscoll for this <laughs> book. Um, so some of the major ones I identify are what I call the progressive emergent tribe of American evangelicalism, which some might say is actually, it resembles mainline liberal Protestantism. And I think it does in many ways, but they also are within the orbit of evangelicalism and were a crucial part of the emergent conversation 10 or 20 years ago. And so in that sense, I think it's important to include them in the analysis. So I refer to the progressive tribe. I refer to um, the Neo-Anabaptist tribe of American evangelicalism, which would be a lot of the people who kind of center around Missio Alliance and um, people like, David Fitch or Greg Boyd and other people who are self-consciously Neo Anabaptist. I also use the language of tribe in a more loose way. It's not really a tribe. It's so big for what I call mainstream evangelicalism, Hmm. which is the kind of the large infrastructural backdrop of evangelicalism in the United States, just kind of generic evangelicalism, what most people think of when they think of evangelicalism who aren't reformed. (laughs) So, um, And then within that, there's also kind of a more identifiable tribe, which is what I call prosperity Pentecostalism. So people like Joel Osteen and other people who are more Pentecostal and lean more toward a health and wealth um, approach to Christianity. So there are those and and other um, tribes or pockets or expressions of evangelical Christianity um, that are on top of the, the Reformed
0: expression. And, and so why the evangelical field as a whole? Why is that a picture of, as you called it, religious weakness?
2: So if you view religious strength as um, putting forth a unified face, having doctrinal and moral agreement on crucial issues, having camaraderie, Christian unity, a sense of shared mission, if that's strength, that evangelicalism as a whole is weak.
1: Hmm yeah that really, that picture, too, of looking at the new Calvinism uh, as it sits amongst these other tribes, just makes a lot of sense uh, in my own experience of the movement. So much of of, you know, what I heard early on was uh, presenting things like Calvinism literally like as opposed to, These other options that you're being given right now. Um, And I've mentioned even on the podcast earlier that, you know, one of the things I'm thankful for of, you know, some of what I uh, received from the new Calvinist movement was, uh, was a better, uh, you know, understanding of doctrine where when Rob Bell, for instance, was being extremely popularized in the circles that I was in, or when, you know, Blue Like Jazz by Donald Miller, uh, or these, you know, whatever other kind of, you know, emergent figures uh, were uh, becoming, you know, these, you know, really big names. uh, I don't think that I would have been able to tell, oh, there's a problem here if I had not had some kind of the backing that I received from some of these men. But even right there, you see that it was it was always in contradiction to these other, you know, rising tribes within the movement. So that's, that's really fascinating to me.
2: Right. I think that's an important point um, that you can't really understand or explain this neo-reform movement um, apart from placing within its broader context, first within American evangelicalism as a field, but also American culture as an ecological context with various factors influencing it. So things like kind of a therapeutic ethos or the gender and sexual revolutions coming out of the 1960s and a few other things that kind of seep into the evangelical field in certain ways, a kind of maybe a consumerist approach or a entrepreneurial spirit
1: and those types of things. So there's context within context, which is what yep. sociologists do. Brad, yeah. do you think uh, this is just a question that pops into my mind, um, is is a system that is inherently reactionary. So its its primary identity as a movement is built around uh, what is it is against. Would you consider that uh, like inherently weak in itself, or or what? I mean, what do you think of a movement if it's if its primary identity is in reaction to something else?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if I would say that the neo reform movement was primarily reactionary. I feel okay. like that's a that's a bit strong. Um, I'd say it's, I mean, it's hard to put, put percentages on, percentages on such a thing to say it's half reactionary and half a strong program. But I, it's something like that, where it's in part, in significant part reactionary against, you know, progressive and atheological trends within evangelicalism, but it's also in significant part, a strong theological and cultural program on offer to younger evangelicals. So, um, they're publishing books that aren't just critical. They're, they're publishing books that are constructive and theological and pastoral and informative. And so I, I wouldn't want to say it's primarily reactionary.
0: Right. I think that, you know, it's, it's so interesting that for me, right. As you're saying that compared to evangelicalism, it had some religious strength because of the unity, right? So it's able to call to me out of general evangelicalism and maybe what we'd say the reactionary element is saying, and this is the track to get on, not not don't go to the progressive route, don't go a Pentecostal route, you Neo-Anabaptist know, route, come, come this route for doctrine, mission, unity.
2: Yes, there was certainly an element of that. Um, and um, one thing I talk about in the book is that Colin Hansen's observations of the movement first with his 2006 article in Christianity Today and then following up with that 2008 book he not only observed the movement, but he also helped to um, create and fortify it in a Mm -hmm. sense. So even though there were um, these religious leaders and a lot of the on-the-ground lay people were obviously present prior to 2006, nobody talked about or could talk about the new Calvinism or neo-reformed evangelicalism prior to 2006 or 2008. And so in that sense, along with, you know, Hanson's work and a few other things, like the Time magazine article I know you've mentioned, really um, almost in a sense created this new movement. It gave it a name, gave it an identity, and a lot of younger evangelicals saw that they latch onto that and uh, they they dove right in. So um, there's a lot of these social dynamics that come into play about how the how the movement actually got created.
0: Yeah, let's uh, talk about which is one of the major theses of your book, what kind of religious resurgence was the new Calvinism? Because again, right, you know, how it's promoted is suddenly, numerically, there's this huge amount of young new Calvinists and, and you present that there is, there are at least different ways we should think about it as well.
2: Right. So as a grad student, I didn't have the financial resources to field huge surveys that could actually come up with a numerical answer to um, how much of this was a numerical resurgence of huge swaths of young evangelicals becoming becoming Calvinists, and in a sense um, there, there are other surveys from Pew and other places that include the reformed slice of evangelical Protestantism but even there um, the new the new Calvinism isn't just all Calvinists or all reformed people who are evangelicals it's a uh, it's an identifiable, almost circumscribed collection of big name pastors, conferences, mega churches, and those types of things. So um, it was hard to get at numerically. And I, I gestured toward that in the book, but it's, I think that might still be a, a project that somebody could do somehow. But um, it's, it's not the biggest expression of evangelicalism. And it might not might not even be the fastest growing i mean the hillside movement pentecostalism um, i think progressive expressions of evangelicalism um are growing I, I i couldn't tell you if they're growing as much um as calvinism but um in order to be a resurgence you, you need to not only have increase you need to have increase percentage wise more than the other pockets and expressions are growing percentage-wise. And I just don't think you see that um, among Calvinism and American evangelicalism. So the question that I tackle in the book is what kind of resurgence is this? Um, obviously it's in one sense, it's a resurgence of conservative Calvinistic theology, but sociologically, what kind of resurgence is it? And as I have hinted at it's a resurgence of prominence and influence and what I call borrowing from uh, French, Sociologist Bourdieu, symbolic power. Um, so it's an increase of these more qualitative and symbolic elements in the field compared to the other expressions.
0: Can you give us examples of what that symbolic power that influence looks like?
2: Sure. So um, symbolic power is is something that is built on top of something called symbolic capital. So so sim- symbolic capital is basically just a st- the esteem or recognition that you have in your field. And then you can build on top of that symbolic power. So it's the power to do things with your words. Uh, so when the, the president or dean of your university says, You've made the honor roll, well, you've made the honor roll because he, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, they have the, such administrators have the symbolic power to make such declarations. And there's other things like that, um, you know justices of the Supreme court or something. But, um, so I would say when, when someone like John Piper says farewell, Rob Bell on Twitter, and it goes off, you know, it just goes viral and there's tens of thousands of of interactions with it. And then Rob Bell is for, you know, functionally expelled from the evangelical fold because John Piper has declared that he is, you know, no longer sufficiently evangelical. That'd be an example of symbolic power. Now, obviously, it's contestable. People are going to say, and people did say, who are you to to say Rob Bell is no longer, you know, whatever he wants to be. So um, that's just one example. Um, Another example of symbolic power um, that I get into in the book would be the the big pushback when World Vision, at least its U.S. branch, changed temporarily its policy on whether employees could be in same-sex marriages. And... We saw a huge pushback over the course of just a couple days that um, was a, a wielding of symbolic power in order to um, essentially reverse that decision. Um, tens of thousands of, of sponsorships were removed within just the, a couple days. And um, you had a big conservative pushback. Um, and that, that doesn't just happen out of nowhere. That involves all sorts of first the symbolic capital the esteem and recognition in your field to say, Hey, this is not the way to go. And then built on the shoulders of that, the symbolic power to make things happen um, within your,
0: within your world. So the leaders of new Calvinism, maybe the right way to say it is they were able to gather outsized influence inside the evangelical field, both as influencers. John Piper at that point is, playing somewhat of an evangelical gatekeeper and they've, they've found ways through online interaction, through, you know, starting, starting new conferences or different things like that, that, that they have positioned themselves in these positions, this kind of position.
2: Right. So a big part of my project was strategic positioning in the field. So um, one of those things is that um, some, not all, new Calvinist leaders Strategically position themselves, even if subconsciously or unintentionally, as gatekeepers to evangelical orthodoxy. The Rob Bell thing and the World Vision um, problem, I guess, um, show show that. But there's other strategic positions as well that the New Calvinists took up. So, as some of the biggest heralds to urban uh, ministry and moving into cities, especially Tim Keller and and then you have you know Mark Dever in D.C. and John Piper was. Uh, close to downtown or in downtown Minneapolis and lots of other, you know, so being in cities is a strategic position like physically, but also, you know, ideologically. Um, and there's a lot of other strategic positioning too. um, presenting yourself publicly as just kind of the obvious, if you're going to be a serious evangelical, if you're going to take the Bible seriously, then you're just going to end up being something close to this new Calvinism. Um, And, and, um, talking that way on the internet a lot, um, serves as another sort of strategic maneuver, again, even if unintentionally or subconsciously that, um, young evangelicals were listening to and they are saying, yeah, I guess that makes sense. If I want to take God seriously and take the Bible seriously, then this is, this is where, um, this is where I need to be. And there's a handful of other things too that were, um, I guess you'd say strategic positioning in the field at the level of religious leadership. So this is things going on, even, you know, far above the ordinary lives of evangelical lay people.
0: Right. And, and outside of even the normal ecclesiastical structures, right? That they're gaining this power um, in all right. kinds so, of ways.
2: So a big part of the movement is Baptists and, and, less so non-denominational where you have less oversight on um you know who can do what and who can say what and where lines can be drawn
1: yeah we've mentioned before how there does seem to be this this kind of uh tr- trading of influence almost where you know you get together and say one of these large conferences you go to a t4g you go to a gospel coalition conference uh and uh Through that, uh, you are able to uh, spread your influence outside of what would have been typical, you know, 20 years before, 30 years before, where it's, you know, you're in this denomination, right? You've got these people that will listen to, or maybe you're in this city. And so you've got a certain, you know, amount of people that will know who you are, what you're doing. And by kind of, you know, uh, engaging in these other platforms, uh, you're able to expand your audience significantly more than you ever would have been able to beforehand.
2: Sure, yeah. And that gets at the importance of the internet um, and other sorts of digital media in this movement. Um, I say in the book that the New Calvinism is or was at least as much a an online movement than it was a flesh and blood movement. Um, mm-hmm. It would have been nearly impossible for such a thing to coalesce without the internet.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting to hear about it because Michael and I we often think we aren't typical but that our involvement with it primarily was through the internet through online means and it's just fascinating to hear of the movement as what Michael and I kind of were doing were helping usher in a new group of gatekeepers and influencers into evangelicalism uh,
2: yeah there is this kind of back and forth or kind of a symbiotic relationship between the the leaders and the lay people right so you have, obviously you have religious leaders, pastors, uh, seminary professors, influencing lay evangelicals. That's somewhat obvious, but you also have um, the kind of on the ground evangelical lay people um, forming the substance of this movement and you know elevating religious leaders. And one thing I found I should note is that a non-negligible percent of the people involved in, in this movement actually didn't know they were part of a calvinistic movement right Mm. so you have people attending t4g conferences or or tgc conferences or even attending a calvinistic megachurch and i had conversations with some of these people and i would ask them do you know what calvinism is and they were like not really so (laughs) it's not it's not a lot i mean it's less than half by far but there is some element there that is one process one mechanism minority of the lay people who are who formed the substance of the neo-reform movement were not that into Calvinism or even knew what it was. And um, so there is
0: that element there. It was, it was the, just the new big, you know, the new big conferences to go to an evangelicalism. I think one question I have is we've, as we've been discussing it and we've been looking back on it, we kind of had this realization that it shares most of the hallmarks of a lot of evangelicalism but it is just it is you know we started talking about it as it's the in the, the introduction of calvinistic soteriology into basically broad evangelicalism even with what you're mentioning with there being mega churches these things yeah how much of evangelicalism's ha- normal hallmarks does the movement have
2: well all of them in the sense of <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> the Bebington the, the, the quadrilateral, if you want to yeah. go there, right? So you have the, there it's four things, crucicentrism, conversionism, activism, and biblicism. And the new Calvinism fits that to a T. Obviously there's some diversity or contention about what those things could mean exactly. But I mean, there's no doubt that the, that the Neo reform movement is, is evangelical protestant so um there's um there's a lot of nuance there there's obviously there's other expressions of evangelical protestantism like we talked about that embody those four marks and there are reformed people who probably wouldn't really identify as evangelical because they're more in like old confessional streams or something so but yeah the um the New Calvinism was definitely an evangelical and I, I'm talking about it in the past tense but that's something we can get into but yep. definitely evangelical
0: yeah. yeah that'll definitely be something we'll go to in the last before I let Michael ask another question you kind of you just um, you just compared it to an older confessional stream how did New Calvinism if at all in in your study kind of interact with this older confessional, you know, these reformed expressions, whether they be the Dutch or, or more traditional Presbyterian.
2: Right. My book doesn't get much into that because it is a focus on American evangelicalism. But of I, I do note at points um, that there have for a long time been conservative Presbyterian and reformed people, um, you know, long before anybody was talking about a neo reform movement and that they've always been there people weren't always noticing them. And so there is that kind of weird tension there that um, that's why it's neo reformed. Right. Um, Right. So um, I also draw a distinction in, I think, what is that chapter two between new Calvinism and neo-Calvinism because at Notre Dame uh, where I was doing grad school, I I mentioned that I wanted to write my dissertation on new Calvinism and and, um, a couple of people assumed I meant the kind of Kyperian neo-Calvinism of mid century. And so um I, I had to write in there a little section about, so there is this ne- neo-Calvinism, and that's not what I'm writing
1: about. So You were just talking about this and you know, brought up the fact that we are talking about New Calvinism in the past tense. Uh, so, I mean, is, is there still a new Calvinism? Right. So I finished
2: most of the book like I mentioned. In 2016, and only about 15 to 20 percent of it is revised or new material in the last four years. So there's a there's been a lot in the last four years um, that has kind of weakened the new Calvinism, even even on top of the fragmenting within the evangelical field as a whole that I think is there. In light of you know contentious conversations around social justice and race and identity politics, I think you have even more. Uh, that kind of fragmenting within the New Calvinism itself. And actually I have four appendices in my book that are you know more technical um, parts of the, of the project. But the fourth appendix, appendix D, is titled "Is the New Calvinism Past its Prime?" Yeah. And so it's a short appendix. It's only a couple pages, but basically what I argue there is that the New Calvinism definitely has um, a loss steam. It was kind of in its peak years right around the time that Mars Hill in Seattle dissolved into multiple autonomous churches um, in around 2014. So, 2011, 12, 13, 14 was kind of the peak energy of the movement, the peak cohesion of the movement. And especially since 2014, 15, 16, I think you've seen a lot of settling down, if not fragmenting and kind of drifting in different ways. I think there's like a like a John MacArthur crowd going in a more conservative direction. And then you have like a, like a Matt Chandler crowd going in a slightly different direction. And so there are, you know, these tensions, but so I I say that the new Calvinism in a sense is past its prime as the new Calvinism as a movement, but in another sense, what, what's, what's falling away is this kind of cohesive movement as a label, but there's still lots and lots of, lay people who embrace the distinctives of this movement and they, uh, haven't, you know, drifted away so much. Some have, you know, some have, you know, um, found other expressions of evangelicalism or gone into more classically reformed views or become Catholic or non-religious or whatever. But, um, the, The loss of momentum and and energy of the neo-reform movement is at this kind of really abstracted level of these social dynamics among leaders. Hmm. And one of the things I suggest in the book is that the new Calvinism was what I call relationally constructed. Some some would say or might be more familiar with the term socially constructed. Hmm. So it was it was relationally constructed from the relationships among certain religious leaders and organizations and if the new reform movement can be relationally constructed as i believe it was then it can be relationally deconstructed
0: wow that's so interesting it's it's almost like the fragmentation and evangelicalism new calvinism 10 years ago is a is a expression to take it in a conservative direction but the fragmentation seems almost inevitable when new contentious issues are addressed to evangelicalism, right? Whether it's social justice or these other, you know, whatever other contentious religious conversations when they didn't, that wasn't baked in right from the beginning.
2: I think it's arguable whether or not it's baked in. I I tend to think it is, but so you have like you mentioned, American evangelicalism as a whole kind of fragmented and went in different directions over the course of the last 10 or 20 years in various ways. And then just in the last three or four years, you see the same thing happening in the neo-reformed camp, fragmenting, going in different directions. And at the end of the book, I talk about um, how the strength and prominence of the neo-reformed pocket actually speaks to a, a certain type of secularization. A secularization that you can either think of as something like a dissolving or what i call cultural entropy cultural right. entropy basically being a what was previously a cohesive cultural system falling apart so what was, what happened 10 and 20 years ago over the i guess i should say over the course of the past 10 or 20 years within evangelicalism as a whole might be happening now within the neo-reform movement itself basically an entropy
0: do, do you discuss any any reason why the relational networks they formed are are breaking down? Is it just these new issues or is, is there something ab- about how they were constructed?
2: I don't get much into that in the book because like I said, I finished most of it in 2016 and only sure, revised yeah. it a little bit uh, in, the, in the intervening years. So I think there's more work to be done on a kind of a follow-up of the movement um, uh, and explaining... Um, to the extent it has broken down, a breakdown. But in terms of why it did that, um, a lot of it, I, I do mention in the book the democratized reading of the text in American evangelicalism. So again, it, this is less a problem for Presbyterians, but if you're Baptist or non-denominational, there's um, more limited scope of authority to say what's, um, what's right and what's not. So once issues of race or social justice come up, you're going to have people coming to different conclusions and different
1: interpretations. And um, it's hard to call balls and strikes. This is fascinating. Uh, I yeah. think a lot of the things that you've said just about the, the peak of the movement, the fragmentation, it fits well within what we've been talking about uh, over the last few episodes, but also uh, we're talking about it from just a, a level of, you know, looking out, we kind of experience some of this stuff. Uh, we don't have any data outside of our own experience really, uh, and now we can finally claim that science is on our side. That's right. Science, uh, science tells us that we're right. So thank you. We, and, <laughs>
0: and, and I think it's, it's interesting as you know, what kind of the impetus to, of us doing the show is watching the new Calvinists we know kind of try and reorganize into these new, you know, these groups you already mentioned, whether it's MacArthur, you know, these groups kind of going in these different directions and, and, everyone kind of wondering went, Hey, I thought we were all together for the gospel or, you know, or whatever. We were all in this together. And so, yeah, this has been uh, great and super interesting to me and helpful, I think. So thank you for the time today, Brad.
2: Yeah. Thank you. It was a lot of fun.
0: Is there anywhere else people can find you online or read you, any of your work?
2: I guess the hub would be bradvermerlin.com. You can read about me there. You can see my what academics call their CV with my publications. That would be where everything's centralized. Brad from
0: Thanks again for listening to Restless. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and contact us on social media or at our email, RestlessPodcasting at gmail.com.